Welcome to the Devil's Junkie Podcast. I am your host, Ralph Amston. It's been three weeks since our last episode, and oh my goodness, what a three weeks it has been. Uh, Seven, seven commitments, an average of one every three days for the last three weeks. So as Arizona State had no commitments heading into June, uh, was trailing a lot of their Pac-12 foes, and all of a sudden about one-third of the class has filled out. So uh, we're going to get into quite a few things on this podcast. Who has committed? What can you expect from them? Uh, are, are the prospects that Arizona State's bringing in uh, on track to fulfill Ray Anderson's desire for uh, what he wants his new head coach and his staff to uh, to achieve. How is Arizona State doing with the local recruits? We'll talk a little bit of uh, basketball. Uh, we'll bring in Marshall Nathy to break down the latest ASU offensive line commit. Uh, and then we'll go ahead and close out the show answering some of your questions. So let's get to it. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. A lot can change in three weeks. Um, I, on the last podcast, you know, uh, we were we were talking about just the fact that you know nobody had nobody had committed yet. Uh, we were breaking down Al Luganville's uh, recruiting strategies. He's the director of player personnel for Arizona State. Uh, has made multiple stops at Arizona State University in the past. Former head coach of San Diego State. Um, you know, they said that they were admittedly behind on the 2019 class, but he expected that by the end of June, most Pac-12 teams would have either one or two quarterbacks committed. We're not to the end of June yet. Arizona State has two quarterbacks committed, uh, as well as five other players for a total of seven. It has definitely been an interesting three weeks, to say the least, and we're going to get into that a, a little bit. Um, this recruiting explosion all tipped off with uh, with Ethan Long, a quarterback out of Westland, Oregon, beautiful town uh, toward the coast of, of Central Oregon. Um, I got to say, you know, he, he was somebody that on the DevilsDigest.com boards, I had alerted people that they should definitely stay aware of. Um, I had no idea that he had even had an offer at the time. That was something he really kept under wraps. And when he came out to to, to visit the campus um, while ASU was hosting, you know, seven on sevens for all the local kids, just sort of blended into the background, did his official visit, ends up committing uh, just 19 days ago now, 19 days ago, Ethan Long became Arizona State's first commit of the 2019 class. Um, definitely uh, an interesting player, and we'll get into a little bit of the, the breakdown of what he brings to the table. Um, if, if you had an opportunity to listen to him on Speak of the Devil's podcast uh, with, with Brad Denny and Joe Healy, um, where we also uh, picked our, our, our Arizona State uh, all-time fantasy drafts, where the fan vote put me in last place. But if you listen to that podcast, you had a chance to see um, you know a little bit of what Ethan Long was about, hear from him, hear a little bit of his story. And I was able to go back and really break down what I saw from him. He's 6'2", 211. Um, He's kind of an athlete in the quarterback role, but in the offense that they ran out of Westland High School, he threw the ball 318 times. Um, they run sort of a, a of, of like a little bit of a spread out there. Um, he completed 210 of those passes for 66% completion percentage, had 3,100 yards, 32 touchdowns, and 10 interceptions. He also carried the ball 87 times for 187 yards and 7 touchdowns. Those stats aren't necessarily indicative of what he's actually able to do um, running the ball. When I look at Ethan Long, 
Long, uh, who's going to be coming in here competing with another Arizona State University quarterback commit in Joe Yellen, who we'll get to in a minute. Uh, he's somebody that I see similarities to maybe Rudy Carpenter's throwing motion and Taylor Kelly's ability to pick up yards with his feet. Um, he kind of splits the size difference between those two quarterbacks. Taylor Kelly played his redshirt senior season at ASU at 6'1", 199, while Rudy Carpenter weighed in about 220, and he, he was 6'3". So, so Ethan Long kind of splits that. And and where I would say that a, a pretty good comparison for him is, because while I've heard people name drop Tim Tebow in relation to Ethan Long, uh, I would say that that's probably just because he's got some muscles. Uh, you shouldn't really throw Tim Tebow's name around too much, considering that when he did come out, he was the number one quarterback in the country. I know a lot of disrespect gets paid to Tim Tebow's arm, but coming out of high school, he was doing just fine. Uh, but I, I, I was a little bit interested in the possible comparison of somebody who played his high school football in the Pacific Northwest, who was known as sort of a strong athlete, multi-sport athlete that was at the quarterback position. And that's Jake Locker, who finished his high school career, you know, about six foot three, two ten, won a 3A state championship after throwing for 1,600 yards and 27 touchdowns. But the big difference between a guy like Jake Locker and Ethan Long is he in, in, in the offense, that Jake Locker ran, he was really expected to run the ball. He ran for almost 1,400 yards and 24 touchdowns as a senior. You know, Ethan Long could probably do that kind of damage if he was in more of a uh, of an option-style offense, but they have him throwing the ball, you know, upwards of 30 times a game. Uh, you know, they, they, they did... Um, Ethan Long did test out at the Nike Elite 11 Regional with actually an identical vertical leap and 20-yard shuttle as what Jake Locker had at the NFL Combine um, and actually runs a, the 40-yard dash one-tenth of a second slower than Jake Locker did after finishing college at University of Washington. So um, they, they, they share some physical traits, they share some athletic traits, uh, but obviously run much different offenses. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of a, a, a big, strong player like Ethan Long's able to do when he gets on campus his film is very interesting um he he he's uh he seems to put in a little bit of a strain when he's throwing 45 to 50 yards down the field there's not a ton of it doesn't look effortless when he's making those big throws um but he he's very accurate uh and he's very uh he shows great acceleration in the pocket great pocket awareness um, and, you know, against some of the better teams that he played against, he did struggle a little bit. I would say that, um, you know, in, in, their, in Westland's nine wins, he threw 30 touchdowns and three interceptions. In their three losses, it, you know, it really came down to obviously him sort of struggling a little bit. He threw for two touchdowns and seven interceptions. So he definitely feasts on some of the lesser competition while struggling a little bit against some of the better ones. Two of those games are against Tigard High School, uh, which is one of the better teams uh, in in Oregon, um, he did he did throw most of his yardage and touchdowns to one primary uh, receiver, Kawi Natsasa, uh, who is at Air Force Academy. Um, and so it'll be interesting this year if you're tracking Ethan Long at Westland High School, what he's able to do with a new crop of receivers, who his go-to guy is, if he's able to spread the ball around. Those are some definite things that you should uh, that you should be watching for. Um, 
And then right after Ethan Long commits, Arizona State, uh, while all of that's going on, uh, Arizona State ends up hosting a bunch of players from the state of Louisiana for official visits. Um, Guys like Trey Palmer, uh, Donald Clay, who has since committed to SMU, Jordan Clark, who Arizona State has a really good shot at, uh, um, son of uh, former NFL safety Ryan Clark for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, They hosted a wide receiver named Devontae Lee, who is one of the top 100 players in the country that Arizona State believes could come in and pick up where uh, where. Keel Harry left off. So, you know, they, they hosted some really, really talented prospects out of Louisiana after getting their first commit. And then their second commit uh, comes in, and it's a quarterback as well. So they get on the board um, in the last three weeks, 19 days ago with Ethan Long, 13 days ago, so less than two weeks, they get a commitment from Joey Yellen uh, at a Mission Viejo in California. And if you listen to the Devil's Junkie minicast, I had an opportunity to talk with him for about 10 to 15 minutes just about his story, what he's able to do well, why he selected ASU, where he's comfortable as far as you know competition level, who he compares himself too so make sure to check that out but when I look at Joey Yellen's film he's a six foot three 220 pound physically mature kid who didn't necessarily throw the ball a lot at Mission Viejo he transferred over from St. John Bosco but one of my absolute favorite things about this kid is he's a winner in every regular season game that uh, Joey Yellen has thrown a pass in which is 21 of them over the last two years his teams are 21 and 0 Never lost a regular season game where he gets to go in and throw a pass. Last year, as the starter for Mission Viejo, he led them to an undefeated regular season, threw for almost 2,500 yards, 29 touchdowns, and 10 interceptions before, you know, getting getting blown out by uh, by the the almighty modern day in the, in the playoffs. Um, the one thing that I'm curious about as far as Joey Yellen, he's he, he's a big body. He He's very natural thrower. He's good when he gets into a rhythm. His throws from 30 to 45 yards are fantastic. He's very comfortable rolling out to his right. Um, and uh, he throws some dangerous-looking balls, but at the same time, he it seems like he always knows when a defensive back is out of place or doesn't have his eyes on him or his feet are wrong, and that's when he's really able to squeeze those balls in, which is, which is fantastic. The one thing that I'm most interested in seeing, you know, what Joey Yellen adjusts to this year as he starts his second uh, full year as the starter for Mission Viejo High School is what he does without five-star Elijah Griffin and four-star Austin Osborne because those are the number 23 and number 125 ranked recruits in the country last year those were the receivers that he was throwing to it's a slight concern that without you know those uh will with those weapons that he only completed about 55 percent of his passes but we have seen plenty of quarterbacks with great weapons um who who have struggled with their completion percentage uh, at the high school level go on to have success at the college level if you remember Brian Lewerke who was the quarterback at Pinnacle High School before Spencer Rattler you know he could he had some great receivers uh, uh that he threw the ball to and he only ultimately completed 51 percent of his his passes he's going into his third year as the starter out at Michigan State so it'll be really interesting to see Joey Yellen and Ethan Long go head-to-head stylistically two very different quarterbacks uh what they do have in common is that they're winning at the level that they're at and they're both physically mature kids um as far as the offers that they had, I think Ethan Long had an offer to Utah, but it might not necessarily have been as a quarterback. Joey Yellen's major other offer, and he he ultimately ended up choosing Arizona State over heading out to Athens, Georgia. So that was his other uh, main offer. So it's not like Arizona State beat out the world for these two quarterbacks, and a lot of Pac-12 teams already had their quarterbacks locked down, or at least one of the two that they were going to bring in. Um, but 
They did get two guys whose recruitment was on the upswing and who are very promising players. Uh, so th and that, that's where their recruiting started off. They locked down two quarterbacks. And then immediately after that, uh, they end up landing uh, Basha offensive tackle Roman DeWeiss. And now Roman is somebody that I wrote about. And again, if you're not subscribed to devilsdigest.com, if you want to know what's going on before it happens, if you want to have some great discussion in the message boards, that is where you absolutely need to be. Uh, I wrote about Roman DeWeiss and, and the fact that, um, you know, I actually had him on the high school rankings that I have posted to devilsdigest.com as the 55th best player in the state. Um, I had written about him a couple of times as being a really promising player. I'd written something for ArizonaVarsity.com, breaking down his film all the way back in March, I think. Um, and then when I, when I had an opportunity to see him, uh, I actually wrote for, for devilsdigest.com three weeks ago, the same day that we published our last podcast. Uh, I had said that, you know, he, he was somebody that you definitely want to watch out for. What I wrote was Roman DeWeiss is one of the youngest 2019 prospects in the state, has a fantastic frame for being 6'5", 290. He's violent at the point of contact, gets low on his blocks, and seems to have a decent kickout step for a high school tackle. And I had seen that Davis Christensen actually spent a few minutes it's closely watching him. And next to Braden Rame, he's probably the only legitimate tackle prospect in Arizona's 2019 uh, prep class. And Braden Rame plays over at uh, Roman DeWeiss's rival, uh, Perry High School. So I had written about him a couple of times on Devil's Digest before ultimately Arizona State decided uh, to, to extend an offer. Um, and then we had the advantage of bringing in uh, Marshall Nathy to, to break down Roman DeWeiss's film a little bit. And, and probably the most interesting thing about Roman is that, you know, he grew up fluent in both Russian and English, allowed him to go ahead and skip a grade because he was ahead of a lot of the other kids. Um, he was ahead of a lot of the other kids his age. Um, and so he's going to graduate high school at 17 years old, he, it'll be his freshman season at Arizona State will be over by the time that he um, turns 18 years old, uh, which is something he has in common with another tackle prospect that Arizona State locked down. Um, but I was able to talk to Marshall Nathy about what he likes about uh, Roman DeWeiss's film. And he said, you know, this is a guy that uh, um, that ultimately it was to Arizona State's advantage to get in on him this early. Arizona State's pretty lucky that that this kid uh, grew up an ASU fan and ultimately committed to what was his first offer. Because you know, if he was a senior, if he had if he had two years of high school left, this very well could be the type of kid that ends up the four star talent that is courted by everybody else. Um, in the country. You know, what Marshall Nathy said to me is that he came into ASU at 20 years old with this head in the clouds. And so, you know, if if Roman DeWeiss can figure out how to compete at Arizona State at age 17, then this is a kid that probably has NFL-level talent. Um, now, uh, you know, one of the things about Roman DeWeiss, obviously he's, he knows he's going to come in and redshirt. He's going to graduate early, come in and redshirt. So that first 18 months uh, that Roman DeWeiss is part of the program is completely going to be a learning stage for him. And it really fits into um, what Al Luganville said he wants to do is bring offensive linemen in that are willing to sit, learn, develop physically and be ready to go when it's their time. Uh, and so um, ASU gets its third commitment uh, of the 2019 season just 12 days ago. So within a week, they land three players. And, you know, little did we know at the time when they landed that third player that they were just ramping up. Uh, right after that, they got their first defensive back commitment um, of what will be Tony White, the defensive back coach's first 
full class, and uh, and and that's Ty Diarman out of uh, Bowie in Arlington, Texas. And Ty Diarman is actually somebody that I had written about for Devil's Digest as well. Somebody who very much reminds me of of, of Jordan Simone, a little bit more violent at the point of contact, and maybe a little bit more experienced as as uh, as somebody who plays offense and defense as an athlete all over the field. But size wise, athleticism wise, leadership uh, intangibles wise, you know. If you, if you enjoyed having Jordan Simone on the team, I think you're really going to like what Ty Diarman brings to the table. This is a kid that had, you know, 36 solo tackles in his junior season, three interceptions, two forced fumbles, but also threw for 460 yards, rushed for 340 yards, and caught 190 yards. He he was just used as sort of a utility knife player. Um, he, he's got um, great acceleration, very good speed, uh, and he's somebody that Arizona State offered in late March, got out to the campus. You know, he went to a visit to Texas Tech and committed to Arizona State immediately after leaving Texas Tech's campus. So ASU obviously made an impression on him. Um, you know, I think one of the things I really liked about his film is he understands center mass. Uh, you know, he knows where to hit you uh, to bring you down to the ground. He also knows when he has the ball in his hands where to hit you to knock you over. He's going to run through you as much as he's going to run around you. Um, I am a huge fan, uh, based on Tidy Armand's film, of the way he plays the ball instead of the defender. So when the ball is in the air, a lot of big hitters forget that the objective is to prevent the catch and not necessarily make a sports center highlight. Uh, and he really plays the ball while it's in the air. Uh, very good acceleration again, very agile, um, and has a really good understanding of his body. I think he's got good balance and good vision. He's someone that, that really, you know, if, if he's able to get his hands on the ball, could really make a play. Um, the interesting thing about uh, Ty Yarman coming to Arizona State is that guys like Dasman, Tadalatasi, Demonte King, Jalen Harvey are all going to be lost to graduation. And it's and if Evan Fields and Ty Tarma, Thomas aren't ready to jump in and fill those safety roles, you know, Ty Yarman might be competing. Uh, two years from now for for a serious role on this defense. And so um, I, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of that commitment for Arizona State uh, to go ahead and lure Ty Diarman over from Texas. That was six days ago. That was less than a week ago. We're talking about uh, you know me writing a commitment analysis for the fourth commitment of Arizona State's class in what was just a two-week period. And then beyond that, that that's not where it ended. Uh, Ricky Pearsall, wide receiver for uh, Corona del Sol in South Tempe, ends up making his commitment to, to Arizona State. He's probably one of the most productive receivers in the entire state of Arizona last year. He had 74 catches, 1,100 yards receiving, got in the end zone a whole bunch. And this is a team that didn't make the playoffs, so he did all that damage in the regular season. Um, he, he does play in sort of an air raid style system. And so while I did watch his film quite a bit, and I had him as a top 50 player in the state of Arizona for the rankings that I put up on devilsdigest.com, I, I did look at Ricky Pierce all is maybe a developmental project, but then I saw him in person this summer. The guy's huge. He got very, very, very big. He's physically a very impressive receiver. And then he goes out and in front of ASU coaches runs a 4-4-9-40. And, and if you can put up the kind of production that he does with a 40-inch vertical and run a 4-5-40, what's not to like? So Ricky Pearsall ends up the the uh, the fifth commitment of Arizona State's 2019 class. And he is somebody that I would compare his yards after a catch ability to... 
uh, Aaron Flugrod. And now, I'm not one to always say, like, oh, you have to compare a white wide receiver to a white wide receiver. Do not do that. You know, show some creativity. Look at their actual style of play. Look beyond the melanin and everything like that. Um, but the truth is, when he's got the ball in his hands, the way he just goes to pay dirt, he's not necessarily shifty. He's not fancy or anything like that. He just gets the ball and does what he needs to. But he's a lot bigger. He's he, he It would be like if Aaron Flugrod's uh, after-the-catch ability uh, was plugged into what Kerry Taylor brought as a receiver at Arizona State University with the, you know, the intelligence and the route running and his body style and everything like that. So it's really like, to me, putting Aaron Flugrod's talent, injecting it into what you already had in Kerry Taylor, who was an incredibly productive receiver at the high school level as well, a lot like Ricky Pearsall. Um, you know, he's somebody that uh, I think that uh, he just abuses any defensive back that gives him any kind of cushion. Ricky Pearsall does kind of struggle against press coverage a little bit, but I think that increased size is probably going to be something that helps him. Love the way this guy tracks the ball in the air and times his leaps. DBs can never really get a read on when the ball's coming just from watching Pearsall Jr. because, you know, of the way that he times the ball. He's definitely got an underrated ability to attain and maintain possession of the ball through contact. Um, he's not flashy. He just gets the job done and he's got serious athletic skills uh, and so you know he's somebody that could come in and you know it, this is all but guaranteed to be Nikhil Harry's final season and by Ricky Pearsall's second year on campus honestly the wideouts that are on the roster will be gone outside of maybe Jordan Porter, Frank Darby and Curtis Hodges by the time that Ricky Pearsall is a redshirt freshman if he doesn't end up playing his freshman year he has an opportunity to start how crazy is that? And so um, definitely uh, diamond in the rough prospect that, that, that Arizona State landed uh, in Ricky Pearsall. That was their fifth commitment, and that happened just a few days ago. Then they land their sixth commitment, their third from the state of Arizona in just a short amount of time, in Saguaro High School linebacker slash defensive back Connor Soley. Now, Connor Soley was long thought of as maybe the one guy that you could guarantee would commit to this Arizona State class, being that he grew up an Arizona State fan and being that his older brother Kyle Soley plays for Arizona State. But there was no real guarantee here. You have to understand that uh, Vanderbilt offered him. He went out there for a visit. Stanford has been sort of teasing that they were going to offer for a while. So the fact that Connor Soley said, you know, I don't care what Stanford does, I'm going to commit to Arizona State, I think speaks volumes, especially when you consider that Connor Soley knows everything that's going on in Arizona State. Would he commit to ASU if his older brother was feeding him information about just all of the dysfunction that's going on at ASU through this coaching transition? I think Connor Soley's commitment actually speaks volumes to what ASU's coaching staff is doing and how they actually come off to the general public and the impression they're making on their current players. Uh, I'm a big Connor Soley fan. I'm not as big of a Connor Soley fan as some of the people who write for me. Uh, I've got some people who write for me like Chili, who used to be a co-host on this podcast who genuinely believe that Connor Soley is the best defensive player in the state of Arizona in 2019. They love his ability. Uh, they love uh, his intelligence. Um, I like him. Uh, I he's definitely a playmaker. 35 solo tackles last year, five interceptions, four sacks, three forced fumbles. He returned a punt for a touchdown. Um, he he's the leader on a defense that might send eight or nine players to the FBS level. So he definitely commands respect. Uh, he is freakishly fast for a linebacker. He runs an 11 one 
100-yard dash, which is why Arizona State's going to be able to plug him into this Tillman uh, position. He runs a 23-second 200. The dude can absolutely fly. He's about 6'1", around 200 pounds, and they think that he can really fulfill that hybrid linebacker safety role that Pat Tillman and Adam Archuleta played. Um, as far as how I what what I would compare him to and, and where I see him fitting in, there were flashes from Carlos Mendoza when he was on campus uh, that he was maybe one of the best pass coverage uh, linebackers that ASU brought in in the Todd Graham era. The whole problem is the dude was just never healthy. Um, turned into an absolute warrior in the weight room, but didn't really spend much time on the field. I feel like with Connor Soley's coverage ability and the fact that you know that this guy's frame is just going to get bigger once he gets on campus, you could actually see a continuation of what if Carlos Mendoza actually was healthy um, while he was at Arizona State. And that, and so that's my take on it. You know, a lot of people say, well, Carlos Mendoza was never healthy, so how can you project that? But I saw some flashes of some really, really good things from him. I think that he's an elite pass coverage uh, linebacker slash safety. Um, he, he doesn't provide the biggest pop on his hits, but he gets the job done and brings people down. Uh, if you watch his film, you'll notice he hits a, he scores a lot of people right up in the chest. And if they don't go down right away, he's very adept at dropping down and wrapping up their ankles. Anything to get them down. Uh, he does just an awesome job of staying at home and pass coverage, anticipating what the, the quarterback is doing. A uh, very intentional in tracking the ball, understands his, he understands leverage and blocking very well. He's able to shed blockers that have 80 pounds and 10 inches of wingspan on him by taking the angle that gets him to the ball instead of trying to go through the block. He's very mature in that way. Again, the thing that's going to set him apart is he just has freakish speed for, for a linebacker prospect. And so, you know, maybe, maybe at the college level, he's not always able to make the big hit and the big tackle when he's the guy that gets there first. But, you know, if you're the one that can slow them down or you can square them up for somebody else or you can hold them up, somebody else can come in and make a play. And so where Connor Soley's biggest weakness might ultimately be is, is, is in really laying the wood when he gets to the ball carrier. And I think that that's probably something that you can turn around and solve in the weight room. But also there's a good side to it too. If you can get to the ball carrier first, if you can slow them down, if you have good fundamentals in your tackling, then you don't always have to be the guy that tries to put someone on a gurney, you know? And so that, that was Arizona State sixth commitment and then recently they also land commitment number seven out of nowhere something that none of us were expecting uh they they land Ladarius Henderson out of Waxahachie Texas now I'm not going to get too much into breaking down Ladarius Henderson's film but I will say uh because I, I brought in uh, um Marshall Nafee to do that uh later on in this podcast but I'm not going to get too much into breaking down Ladarius Henderson's film I will say that he fits with the theory of guys that you can get on campus and develop over time. He's 6'4", 270. He's only been playing football for a year. Um, they, they, he looks pretty good at the tackle position. They might move him to the inside. He still has a little bit of room to grow, and he's not going to be 18 years old until after his freshman season ends as well. Uh, he had a fantastic interview with Hode Rubino if you check out devilsdigest.com. Um, there's quite a few. If you want to hear from Ricky Pearsall, check out the devilsdigest.com mini episode uh, where I talk with him. If you want to hear from uh, um, Joey Yellen do the same uh, you can hear from Ethan Long on the Speak of the Devils podcast and we have interviews with every single one of these guys that committed Hode conducted a fantastic interview with Ladarius Henderson um, but what I want to do is I want to um, I want to bring in 
Marshall Nathy, to talk about what he sees, because he did a fantastic job breaking down what he saw in Roman DeWeiss. And so I think it would be great to, to just be able to hear from former offensive lineman from Arizona State University, Marshall Nathy, on what Ladarius Henderson brings to the table, uh, and then have him weigh in on some other topics as well. All right, welcome back to the Devil's Junkie podcast. I've got a new uh, uh, favorite guest uh, in former ASU offensive lineman Marshall Nathy, who uh, did me a huge solid and helped me walk through the evaluation of Roman DeWiss a, a couple of weeks ago uh, when he committed. And you could see that up at devilsdigest.com. And, uh, and, and so, you know, Arizona State has a new offensive line commit. So I figured I'd, I'd bring you on the Devil's Junkie podcast to talk a little bit about that, talk a little bit about some other things. Um, but first and foremost, man, how you doing? Oh, dude, I'm doing great, man. I'm living... I'm living the life. Very comfortable. I'm working, you know, finishing school, and I'm working. I'm working with analyzing and finishing my masters and staying on schedule and having a girlfriend. So that's like 95, 98 percent of my time right there. And you just um, left. You just left MMA training, correct? Right. Yeah. I, ju- I just finished. We were sparring today. Can't feel my left leg currently. <laughs> my buddy. My buddy chop the crap out of my left leg uh, but, yeah, but we'll be all right oh heal so i mean uh now the the mma thing just kind of started as a way to, to to drop a few pounds uh or has it become a new love or, or or what's the story there yeah actually yeah i mean um uh, <laughs> for what i did you should guess you should be able to guess i'm, a, I'm an aggressive guy um but yeah, no, it's definitely become a new passion of mine. It's something I've wanted to do since I was a kid, but I've never been able to because of football because I didn't want to risk getting hurt. Uh, but yeah, I've actually dropped uh, like 38 pounds now, so it's definitely helped lose a couple pounds. Um, yeah, my body feel good, and, and I don't know, it, and maybe in the future I might start competing um, in different, like Muay Thai is my big one. Muay Thai is really what I do, which is the combination of uh, all... Uh, standing fighting whether that be boxing type punches and then kicks knees elbows uh there just won't be any uh rolling on it which would be more jujitsu so that that's something i that's something i really learned to enjoy and yeah that's just my new way of relieving some aggression so i'm not you know punching walls or even worse <laughs> punching people so there you go uh i mean anything to keep the keep the competitive juices flowing and then make sure that they're channeled is what's important most offensive linemen want to hit somebody and so that gets taken out on fridays or saturdays uh so i i totally get it so let's talk about this kid i think it's pronounced waxahachie high school out uh there's a lot of it looks like a bad scrabble hand and he He's he's out there from Texas. He transferred from DeSoto, which is just a huge, huge program out there that's produced a lot of kids. Transferred over to Waxahachie, but never played football before getting there. Played for John Kitna, who's at Brophy High School now. Um, one year on the offensive line. Looks like he spent most of it at the tackle position. 
and Run, he's another one of these guys that's just young as hell. He's 6'4", 270, and, you know, barely 16 years old, isn't going to turn 18 until after the season ends, his freshman uh, year uh, at Arizona State. What are your initial impressions of this kid, Ladarius Henderson? Golly, honestly, he, he reminds me of, like, a well-versed newborn giraffe. The kid is long. Oh, my God. With his 7'4 wingspan, that thing is obnoxious. And I'm going to pay him a huge compliment right now, which I don't really do. Let's see if he defends it over the next couple seasons. But he reminds me a lot of Tyron Smith uh, with the, the Cowboys. He he has the same arm spin, uh, He has the same arm length. He has the same type of play. Um, he has a couple of notes I jotted down from watching his film. He has great lockdown hands. Uh, I saw one play on his highlight reel that he, he and my, the craziest thought for me was that this was his first season. And I mean, a lot of, what a lot of people I really appreciate is, is my no smoke type, type attitude. And, and I was pretty amazed. I was expecting the kid to look raw, uh, and, and almost flustered to a point that, that he could barely play football. But this kid was able to, he, I saw him get under a defensive end and lock him down on a level that, that you would see competing at ASU right now. Um, I mean, he, he locked the kid in, and there, there was absolutely no way in hell the ref could have ever called holding. There's, there, there's just no way, and, and the kid couldn't even move. That, um, that, impressed, that impressed me by far. But other than that, I mean, he's got a great first step. Um, a, couple, a couple things he needs to work on that just comes with experience. Is his stance is a little bit obnoxiously long, which uh, you kind of get that with just him being the size he is and not playing very long. Because again, I mean, one year—that's that's just ridiculous. I mean, that's just—you can't learn all that. So his ability to do what he does is purely God-given. It is natural, natural raw talent, and that can be tapped uh, tremendously. But uh, other than that, he's got good balance on sitting with exterior rush moves. I mean, he has the ability to not lean, which typically you'll see that at a younger at a younger player. I mean, he's 16 on top of that. I just I'm kind of, I was kind of blown away actually, and I'm not and I'm not a guy who's shocked like that very easily. For for one season, the kid the kid is special. And, uh, and well, what people what people don't understand is when we say one year of experience, what we really mean is the highlights you're watching are from his first couple of months of that one year. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Let's clarify that a little bit. If, you, if, if any if anybody listening, if you watch, if you watch his highlight, that is, I mean, it's just you can't get taught that that fast. His understanding of the game is pretty is pretty incredible because that. <laughs> Honestly, I must have been one bad player because he, he he was be- he looked better than I ever did. It's on his first season, so so man, I don't know. He's he, he's got a couple really good aspects coming from that he can that he can own in on. Um, I mean, he needs to he needs to learn how to use his long wingspan. He let a couple of the rushing uh, defensive ends get into his chest too much. Uh, but that also comes with higher level coaching and just higher level training. Uh, on top of that, what also what also was really impressive to me is his ability to get his first step going on the zone, uh, the zone plays on offense. I mean, the kid, the, he, man, I'm told I'm totally just 
guy that looks for negatives, uh, something kids can work on. And this kid, he, he had a great first step. He had great hands. And uh, another one of the plays is he saw, which this is another terribly hard thing for a lineman to get down. But he was he was running for a left outside zone. So the running back was about six yards, six yards to, to the, the left hip of his. And he had a defensive end that he got around. And typically, you would see a younger player, a fresh player, turn with him and, and wheel his butt. But he, he, he was intelligent enough that that kid took himself out of the play. And he literally just didn't even second. It didn't even phase him. He didn't even, it didn't even look like he had to think about it. He just naturally knew to keep moving, to keep moving on to the linebacker. And that alone is just going to be a huge benefit. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not joking when I say that is a huge part of especially being a tackle is to understand when to let somebody go. And this kid has it down. I mean, he, 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 he'll be all right. From, yeah, he'll the, be all right. The thing that stood out to me about his highlights is that they were a little bit, they were a little bit manic. It's like in the beginning – you know, somebody told him, "Oh, you know, we well, with an offensive lineman's highlights, we want to see you knocking people over." So you'd have like three or four of him just sort of like pushing someone over. You know, maybe maybe toward the end of a play, but then you'd have like three or four plays on his highlights that, to the naked eye, didn't look like anything spectacular. But he was getting his hands out in front of him. His first step was good. His base was great. His posture was there. So, like, the boring part of his highlights are the things that made me kind of scratch my head. You know, like, wow, how 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 did he have no real recruiting attention before this? I think maybe North Texas had offered a couple of smaller schools, and then, you know, uh, Dave Christensen finds him out there, you know, at at Waxahachie, um, you know, (laughs) without really any of that attention. And, you know, usually when guys don't have any offers or anything like that and, you know, don't even have a profile on Rivals or anything and they end up committing somewhere, Rivals will just go in and slap two stars on them or whatever. But then after our guy out in Texas watched the film, you know, even though it was his first time seeing him, he makes him a a three-star out there without really any – major offers besides Arizona right. State. And so, um, but yeah, it was the boring parts of his film that, that really stood out the most to me. Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at this level, at the high school level, anybody can run over somebody. I mean, if you're, if you're just substantially larger, which this kid is, you can you can fall on whoever you want. And, and that, I really, that, personally, I really didn't give a crap about. I, I, didn't, care, I didn't care to watch any of that. So I wanted to see how he was, with the little things because a kid that size and a kid who's just starting is is going to be is going to move like he has he has no experience and that should have came out that's what i was looking for but that didn't happen i mean like you said i mean even going down to his posture within his stance he looks like an experienced pac-12 tackle already he looks like he's very comfortable he's able to get out of his stance quickly and he, he and he's not obnoxiously trying to get out so fast that he ends up screwing himself. He, he's not freaked out at the possibility of someone quicker being on the exterior. And I think if the kid can, can continue to hone in his his skill, uh, and, and man, if he just learns even more about his body, and especially in the football world, he'll he will be a very very successful tackle at, at the Pac-12 level and maybe even the next level after that. That That is strictly that would be up to him and his, his mental capacity to work as, as hard as he needed to. 
So my follow-up question is this, because Al Luganbill, director of player personnel out there, he says, you know, we want to establish a, a culture at Arizona State where people realize that, like, they're coming in and they're probably going to be here for five years. We want depth. We want, like, seniors going out. You know, sophomores, redshirt sophomores stepping up behind them. Think of it like a shark's mouth where there's all those rows of teeth. And when the outside row falls out, the next row, you know, of teeth just kind of it, it kind of just rotates in. You know, that's that's the vision that they have out here. Now they have two offensive linemen, 16 year old seniors that are both committed. Do you think that that's uh do you think that's risky, or do you think that it's the right move to move into this whole developmental thing, get guys that know they're going to be on campus for five years, have that mindset, try to have them developed by the time they've been on campus for two or three years? Uh, it, it's the right move for sure um, because because of the knowledge I know that of the guys who have their back. Um, a lot of a lot of colleges will completely blow smoke up your ass, and and, and really they just – they're not taking care of the players like they should. Uh, and that's just the, the realism of the business aspect of the football uh, world. But at, at ASU, you have guys like Justice Smith, guys in the shadows that, that keep the kids on tracks. Personally, I can speak from experience that I've had guys have my back and support me in ways that I can't even mention. They just they want to see personal growth as men as well as football players. And with that establishment, no kid should want to rush off of uh, rush out of there. I mean, they shouldn't want to get to. I mean, obviously they're going to want to earn the money if they have the potential to play in the league, but they're not going to feel like, oh, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. And Coach Christensen, he he does a really special job with the younger kids. I mean, yeah, he's tough. Um, he was. I mean, I can talk from experience. He's tough on me. He was very tough on me in our first uh, couple months of interaction. But that's because he just. He, he knows he has you for a couple years, and he can turn you into a great player. You just have to let him. So it's going to come down to these two kids that I've said that we've uh, analyzed over the last couple of weeks, the new uh, offensive line recruits, that if they are willing to, to, to listen, to adjust, and uh, to realize they do not know it all, then they will have as much potential as they possibly could desire that they could get as far as they wanted. They just have to allow themselves to be coached and uh, understand that they are going to be in the back row. There, there's going to be guys like Cole Cabral, uh, Quinn Bailey's a senior now, Steve Miller's about to be uh, uh, a redshirt junior. He, they're, they're all getting old, um, and they're getting to the point where they're experienced, and they are veterans. And... Um, they have to understand that they're going to be answering to them. They're going to have to be guided by them. And if they allow that to happen, they should be all right. I'm not, I'm not too worried about these two kids. Do you feel like of any position at Arizona State, do you feel like the big guys up front, you know, traditionally ASU's had at least, at least, you know, two-fifths of, of, of the line uh, be local boys, you know? Uh, do you do you think that it's it's important of of any position group, um, you know, to 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 have that representation? But but most of all for the offensive line, uh, because it's that's really been the one consistent thing over the years is you've always had one or two guys, and even at times three that that were you know from right here um, in in Arizona. 
and and I think this year the people contributing to the offensive line, you know, at least with Bailey and and, and Miller, you you definitely have that, and with you know uh, Casey Tucker coming in as well. Oh yeah, no, oh absolutely. Um, <laughs> I think I think on top of me being an ex player, uh, the fans wanted to stay local because that that creates that creates deeper meaning behind winning and deeper meaning behind uh, on the field and off the he- off the field success. I mean, because you're not no alone representing your college, you're representing your state, you're representing where you're from. And you're making a legacy not only for you, but the name you have on the back of your jersey. That's that, that's always been huge for me, huge. And I think that's becoming more. And when a kid mentions that, that means that personally means a lot to me because if you have respect for the name you're wearing on top of the name you're representing on the front, like ASU, then you're you're drawing power from a from a deeper place. You're not just playing football anymore. And I, I believe that we need to concentrate more on recruiting locally so that we can get more of these local kids because there is a huge, a huge amount of uh, hidden gems within the Valley because I've played with them and, and I know how hard I work and they competed with me in, in, in the weight room and I, and, and in the speed training. And that's just, that's just you don't. I don't care how big you are, and and that's just my. That might be my fault. I don't look at size. I absolutely never have. Maybe because I, I've always been undersized. <laughs> uh, that's probably the reason. But if we we need to start recruiting locally because on top of a bunch of untapped talent that is around the pool, uh, we the fans want it. They've been demanding it for years, and I think Herm is somebody who would who Well, that's and but that's a controversial topic. Should you reach? Should you potentially reach? I'm using air quotes for some right. for some local kids to where ASU is essentially their best offer, um, or should you just take big swings at, at all the big guys coming out? And it seems like this year, you know, they just got Ricky Pearsall Jr., a wide receiver out of Corona del Sol High School. ASU right. is really his best offer. Uh, Roman right. DeWiss out of Basha, who you evaluated, ASU was his first offer you know and so they they they're um they got uh connor soley um kyle's little brother out of saguaro who grew up an asu fan all three of these kids grew up asu fans so for the first time ever we're really starting to see asu fans uh uh become asu players just from you know being established in in the valley going to games as kids and things like that but for all three of those guys, Arizona State was really their best option, um, at least so far. You know, they've got a year of, uh, of of high school football left to play. Um, do you do you think you've obviously said you think Arizona State should be taking some of those some of those kinds of kids uh, who really 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 want to be here? Um, but what's the right balance of swinging for those top flight guys and then and then the ones where you might ultimately be their best offer, but they've got the extra motivation of the name on the front and the name on the back, like you said? Um, man, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. I think, I think if you find someone who truly knows the answer to that, I would pay them a lot of money to coach your team. Um, <laughs> because that, it really depends. It, it depends what kind of uh, characteristics you're, you're going to coach with the, with your team. Um, I think you have to have 
you have to have uh, you have to you have to shoot for the fences on some kids uh, because obviously just the raw talent they have is going to be a huge factor. Um, but I'm a true believer in the underdog. I think I think kids that have had to scratch and, and bite and claw their way out of the question of being undersized or under-recruited, um, those are the kids that are going to see success um, because those are the kids that want it. They, they, they're guys that have never, that have never taken no for an answer. And, and I, I sure as hell don't think they ever would. Um, I don't think they're ever going to, I don't think they're going to start when they've had, when they've, they've made it halfway there for, I'm assuming their ending dream of playing the NFL, they've made it halfway. Right, and Arizona State's history is littered with those guys, whether it's Jake Plummer, right. Pat Tillman, Adam Archuleta, Levi Jones yep. was a walk-on and ended up the fifth pick yep. in the NFL draft. And so, and now he's on our wall of fame, exactly. Kids yeah. like that, that, I will always believe in kids like that, always. That's, that's, who, that's, that's who I believe makes a team um, because they're guys that have never expected and never felt they – they were owed something. They were kids that if I want something, I'm going to go take it, and I'm going to grab it, and I'm going to hold on to it, and ain't nobody ever taking it from me. Right. There's and, not not a whole lot of entitlement when you've never been you, you've never been allowed to be entitled. Exactly. And that's where you that's where you see the success, and that's where I believe we will win. All right, Marshall Nathy, we're going to be hearing a lot more from you on the Devil's Junkie podcast in the future. I promise uh, everybody that. Uh, thank you so much for breaking down what you saw in Ladarius Henderson and talking to me a little bit about uh, in-state recruiting, and and uh, we'll catch up next time. Absolutely, brother. Take care, man. Man, I absolutely love having Marshall Nathy be part of the podcast. Somebody who has the recent playing experience, somebody who who definitely has that love for for being an Arizona State Sun Devil, someone who wants to see the program succeed, and still has the ability to take himself uh, outside of the situation, even though he has tons of friends on the team, and, and give his honest, no-holds-barred analysis. So really look forward to having him uh, be on the podcast as often as possible as, as we progress into this fourth year of doing the Devil's Junkie podcast. Uh, so one thing that I want to get into before we, we make the switch to basketball and then ultimately answer the questions that you sent me is talk about recruiting in the state of Arizona. I wrote something up for Devil's Digest last night. I'm going state by state all the way across America in this state of recruiting series. Um, I've, I've done Hawaii, I've done Georgia, and figured that now that they have three commitments from the 2019 class, it would be good to jump in and just talk about the state of recruiting for the state of Arizona. Um, there's really a lot of question marks and always has been about the the right thing to do to make sure that you keep some of these elite kids home. 2019 is probably the deepest class in the history of Arizona high school football. Uh, there's probably 35 guys that are going to go to Power 5 schools. Contrast that against the 16 
um, that went from the class of of 2018. Uh, and then beyond that, you know, you probably have another 35 to 40 guys beyond that, that that'll be playing at the group of five level. So just an absolutely fantastic, super deep class for this for the uh, 2019 season. And where it looked like Arizona State was really ultimately struggling, they take a chance on three guys who don't necessarily have a lot of offers elsewhere, um, bring them into the fold, and then all of a sudden you got three guys, you know, from the state of Arizona, whereas last year you only had one, and that was from, you know, the town of Safford, and you were really his best offer as far as Ralph Frias. And so, um, you know, it, it's something that I know that is important to Arizona State. I know that it's also infuriating to Arizona State, all the headaches that come along with it. And it's definitely never been a topic that has provided um, – uh, any, uh, there have been less than friendly conversations around this topic on message boards and on Twitter and when families get together and out at games and anybody uh, who pays attention to what's going on um, with Arizona State. This always comes up. I have my own perspective on it. I have a very strong take on how I feel about Arizona State recruiting the state of Arizona. More than half of my job makes up getting to know the, the the recruits from around the state of Arizona. I want nothing but for these guys to thrive, and I don't care necessarily where they do it. I just want them to go out, represent themselves well, and get an education. It's easier for me being, you know, where, where I'm at and covering ASU like I do when, you know, when these guys do decide to stay home and be a hometown hero. It makes my life easier because those are guys coming in that I've already developed a relationship with, and I know a little bit about, uh, you know, but it doesn't matter where they go. I'm always rooting for them to succeed. But I do have a really strong, what I feel like is experienced take on how I feel like Arizona State should approach in-state recruiting. And I got into that a little bit in what I wrote last night. But I have to, before I even broach this subject, before I continue down any road of examining Arizona State's in-state recruiting efforts, I've walked this minefield enough to know that there are certain topics that I have to address before proceeding. So I have this permanent disclaimer. Anytime I bring up local recruiting in Arizona State University, I have to break into this permanent disclaimer. So let me get my my announcer voice on, and I will take you through this and understand that anything that I say about Arizona State, recruiting in-state, and anything I say about in-state kids wanting to be recruited by Arizona State all come uh, with with the caveat of me understanding this disclaimer, which addresses probably the concerns that are most often brought up uh, by people who hold an interest in this subject. So, permanent disclaimer. Arizona State should recruit the best available talent within their designated recruiting footprint. State boundary lines are arbitrary markers and should not be used to measure recruiting success. That being said, there are no schools that consistently field top-flight football programs that do not also, year after year, secure at least a third of the best talent within the school's immediate vicinity besides the enigmatic UCLA Bruins. This does not include schools in the national and footprint like Stanford and Notre Dame. Sometimes, kids just want to leave. Sometimes, ASU gets outworked. A swing and a miss while disheartening is considered more admirable than striking out looking. Ultimately, winning is the only thing that matters. Attempting to win with out-of-state recruits to get the attention of in-state recruits is a completely understandable approach so long as in-state recruits aren't neglected. There. Are we good? That is my disclaimer. That is what I have prepared every single time to address everybody's concerns that they're just ready to throw out before they actually listen to what I have to say. So understand everything goes through that lens. Uh, So let's get into it. How is ASU doing locally? Huge question, right? They landed Roman DeWeiss. They landed Ricky Pearsall Jr. They got Connor Soley. 
Uh, they finished runner-up, though, for Jacob Conover, the Chandler quarterback, and Braden Lybrock, the Chandler tight end, while finishing completely out of the running for four-stars Spencer Rattler, Jake Smith, and Braylon Trice. So at the current moment, ASU is the most attractive offer for Dwight Pearsall and Soli. So in one respect, it's hard to say that ASU has made progress when it comes to winning competitions for local recruits, but at the same time, all three grew up fans of Arizona State. So when it comes to taking advantage of the slowly deepening roots that many have put down in the belly over the last few decades, this is a good development. Here's why that is a very good development. We don't know when it's going to be that Arizona State's tradition really takes hold in the valley. Everyone came here from somewhere else, it feels like, right? I came to I came to Arizona in 1987 to live with my dad. Before that, I'd been living with my mom, who was a student at the University of Wyoming, okay? I grew up, I went to Arizona State, I married someone who went to Arizona State, and you know where my fandom lies? With Wyoming. Ultimately, the team that I'm still a fan of, and it's kind of hard to be a fan of who you're really a reporter on. You, you, you want to make sure that you're looking through things as an honest lens. I definitely have uh, uh, elevated interest in what's going on at Arizona State due to a number of factors. But I came to Arizona in 1987. I haven't been on Universities of Wyoming's campus for more than a total of an hour in the last 31 years, and yet... That's who I root for, because that's where my mom went. That's where three of my uncles went. That's ultimately where I come from. And I find some sort of, I don't know, like exotic uh, favor and comfort in, you know, everybody does and feeling like you came from somewhere else. It, growing up in Arizona, the one thing that I always noticed that was super annoying is all the people from Chicago and Cleveland that would come here and live here and talk about how great Chicago and Cleveland were. Well, like, okay, well, if they're so great, go back. But you can't, right? The jobs are here. The jobs are in Arizona. It's the Wild West. Everybody comes, you know, to make their nut. Everybody comes out here to get paid and, 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 and to, to live in this, this melting pot. Fantastic weather most of the year, um, you know, where you're, where you're within a stone's throw of all these different great things, you know, whether in Mexico or Nevada or California or, you know, being an hour away from being in the pines. Arizona is just a fantastic, incredible place, but everyone sort of romanticizes where it is they're from. And sometimes it takes a few generations to get there. I went to Arizona State. I raise up my kids. You know, they know I went to Arizona State. They know their mother went to Arizona State. They also know their mother is from Pennsylvania and ultimately is still a Steelers fan because of it. You know, and so I think everybody brings that with them. You know, it'll probably be my kids' kids who see nothing but maroon and gold if we stick around this area. I think it probably takes a generation or two before people ultimately grow up fans of a school, you know, when you have somebody, uh, look at Kyle Caldwell, you know, his dad played for Arizona State and he played for Arizona State. That's how you really ultimately ingrain, you know, my dad went to ASU and then I went to ASU. That's how you really ingrain those things uh, into, pe in, into people. And so it's a fantastic development that Connor Soley grew up an ASU fan, that Ricky Pearsall, despite his dad playing for NAU, grew up an ASU fan, that Roman DeWeiss, his dad's ASU alum, his brother went to ASU, grew up an ASU fan. That is a fantastic development. You're going to start to see more and more of that. What you want to see that from is the elite kids, right? The guys who are the four and five stars. And I don't necessarily know if we're there yet, but it's a good development.
And so I want to get into the things that ASU is doing right locally with football recruiting. Uh, thing one, they're leaving no stone unturned. Donnie Yontis has uh, been, been trotting throughout the desert um, at, to every single school that will have him uh, to make sure that he knows what is going on at every single school. He's not relying on guys like me. He's not relying on guys like Jason Jewell. He's not relying on coaches to email him huddle film. He's going out to every single school in Florence and Yuma, in Tucson, out in the far West Valley. He's hitting all these schools to, to so that he's not relying on any secondhand information. He's repairing relationships. He's out there forging relationships. He wants to know if you have a guy at one of these small schools that that one of these other schools might not come out to when they fly to the state of Arizona. He wants dibs on those guys. I think the leaving no stone unturned is a fantastic thing that they're doing. Uh, the second thing they're doing really well is they're getting a lot of kids on campus. In January, they had uh, Ty Robinson, Des Melton, Noah Pola Gates, Connor Soley, Braden Librock, and Jacob Conover all on campus. They ultimately ended up making sure that all six of those guys had offers. Right, So they, they started off strong in this effort, and then they've done everything they can to just get people on campus constantly. All the best 2020 recruits in the state of Arizona just spent time on ASU's campus doing group photo shoots, posing in the white jerseys, holding chains, and things like that. Um, fantastic job, P.S., with the ASU's graphics and recruiting uh, department. Huge upgrade in that area. Uh, but they get these kids out to the campus. You know, they, they show up for the seven-on-seven -seven tournaments. They show up for these camps. Um, they have a bunch of guys coming through on unofficial visits all the time. They're doing a great job of making sure that kids are on ASU's campus. Because think about it. The best way to imagine yourself on Arizona State's campus as a college football player is to spend a bunch of time on Arizona State's campus as a high school football player. Uh, plus, ASU gets the chance to, you know, um, get a feel for some of these kids, make judgments about their character, get a close-up look at their physique, find things that aren't always easy to see on film. Uh, that's what ASU has done the absolute best since, the, the, you know, and I think that that was probably going to happen under Todd Graham anyway. They're going to want to uh, show off these new facilities as much as possible. I know there's a lot of frustration with having to walk kids through construction sites and, and having them envision the future. Now you don't have to have them do that, you know. And so, you know, I, I think either way they would have done everything they could to get kids on campus. The moral of the story is Herm Edwards and crew is doing a good job at it right now. Uh, the other thing I think that they're doing well is they're identifying prospects with high potential, right? Roman DeWeiss is a two-star. Ricky Pearsall is a two-star. They might not ultimately end up two-stars in the final uh, round of recruiting rankings. We'll see how they do and what they put on film for their senior seasons. But they're identifying guys that, that, that they didn't used to uh, take chances on because if you if you if you think about it more guys from the state of Arizona have gone to the NFL over the last 15 years than guys that have come out of ASU and so you look at it that way and say all right Arizona State is missing out on all of these guys with NFL potential some of them they're offering and they're getting beat on other ones they're not offering at all Probably about half those guys went without an ASU offer and ultimately end up getting developed at a group of five or other school and turning into an NFL-level prospect. Well, ASU's finally starting to go back to their roots in the days they had guys like Levi Jones and Adam Archuleta go from walk-ons to NFL-level first-round talents, and they're saying, you know, what can we do 
to find these kids who have a huge ceiling and how do we have the confidence in ourselves as coaches to get them there? I think landing Roman DeWeiss is, it was big. I think Ricky Pearsall and Connor Soley are, are big, high potential guys. They offered Tolleson wide receiver Andre Johnson, who I've been you know preaching about for a year as a 6'3 guy with super uh, raw talent. And then Shadow Mountain linebacker Jalen Williams, who as a wide receiver or a linebacker has super high potential. You know, these are all guys that I could see ultimately ending up in the NFL, but typically guys that Arizona State ultimately would have passed on, they would have fallen to other schools and been developed um, through those channels. ASU really just has to get to the point where they can show local high schools that you can commit to Arizona State out of high school, go through Arizona State, and end up in the NFL draft. Because the last time that happened, the last time somebody came out of high school, went to ASU, and was a day one NFL draft pick, Mike Pollock, Corona Del Sol, a guy that was playing at ASU when most of the current kids who they're recruiting were in kindergarten. Most of these kids don't even know what's going on around them as far as college football until they're 14, 15. So you have to be turning out one of those guys every two or three years, and they're going to have that in Nikhil Harry. But they've got to find some other guys to be able to do that with, and I think they've got a pretty high chance with some guys like Roman DeWeiss, and if they can get a guy like Andre Johnson or Jalen Williams to commit, maybe them as well. Uh, locally, let's talk about where ASU needs to improve a little bit. And I think that they're, they've actually taken some steps in the right direction. Um, and that's to pay respect to what I call the five families. That any given year, there are five or so head coaches um, at local high schools that have all the talent, right? Um, it varies from year to year, but I write, I'd say right now the coaches that feel the most fruitful high school uh, football programs are Chandler, Saguaro, Hamilton, Higley, maybe Williams Field. You throw a mountain point in there. There's a couple other schools, Chaparral. Uh, but Chandler, Saguaro, Hamilton, Higley, and Williams Field. That's whose good side you need to be on. No matter what it takes to be on their good side, you do whatever gymnastics it takes to be on their good side, right? Whether it takes a pinch, a spoon, or a cup full of sugar to help swallow any pride in order to do so, do it. Do it. Because the local prospects and the local head coaches, they don't owe Arizona State anything. Sure, Bash's head coach went to ASU. Sure, uh, Sawaro's head coach went to ASU. Sure, Williams Field's head coach played at ASU. Sure, Higley's head coach went to ASU and actually helped coach at ASU. Sure, the ASU roots at Chandler High run deep with their assistants. But they don't owe Arizona State anything. Conversely, Arizona State's coaching staff... Uh, needs the collective favor of the entire high school community, if for no other reason than to avoid the tired narrative that they don't do enough to keep the, the best already developed talent as well as the highest upside projects at home. I'm one of the people that talks about that constantly. If they want to avoid me talking about it and everybody else talking about it and those tired conversations, you have to at least keep them happy. And that does not necessarily mean extending offers. Now, here's what I wrote on devilsdigest.com. You've heard the phrase, happy wife, happy life. Well, in the same vein, consider happy local coach, right local approach. Universal truth when it comes to avoiding any of these unnecessary headaches. And the shelf life for these relationships uh, for the high school coaches are like a houseplant. You got to water it regularly. You got to stay in communication. And it's going to start to wither and die. It does not mean that you extend offers to all of their marginal kids. It just means that you communicate. You communicate with them. You communicate with the kids. Sometimes it goes farther and just flat out telling a kid, hey, we don't think that you're good enough to be at Arizona State, but I've got a friend at a D2 school or I've got a friend at an FCS school who I think could really be interested in your film. I'm going to kick it over to them. 
Sometimes that goes much further than doing something like University of Arizona did last year in extending offers to guys like Lance Lawson, Drayson Hall, wildly popular, super athletic kids that they had no intention of taking in a million years just to take advantage of some of the publicity. You know, both of those kids ended up at Southern Utah. ASU shouldn't be offering guys that it doesn't plan on taking. That's disingenuous. But they should, and this is something that Antonio Pierce has talked about, be honest. And Antonio Pierce, as a high school coach at a high-level program, that's all you can ask for. High school coaches know when you come in unprepared or you don't know what you're doing. High school coaches know when a coach comes in to spend eight hours with them versus when someone does a half-hour check-in. And that brings me to my second point, one thing that I'd like to see ASU do a little bit better. To keep the foxes out of the hen house, you have to think like a fox, right? It is currently open season on Arizona prospects. University of Texas, a school that hasn't landed an Arizona recruit since Connor Brewer, and not one before that that I can even remember. I think Lyle Senline was a walk-on out there. They came in and landed Braden Lybrock and Jake Smith. Charlie Ragel at Cal, he got Brett Johnson before Arizona State even knew to look in that direction. Iowa State, for crying out loud, has gotten Kaheem Walid on their campus for a visit. They landed Joey Ramos over ASU last year, and they've got their hooks in deep with Des Melton, who Arizona State might get beat out for by Iowa State. These are not even the typical schools that ASU has had to worry about in the past. So there's still going to be the usual challenges from USC, UCLA, Nebraska, and probably Arizona now that Kevin Sumlin's there, bringing over the connections he had from Texas A&M, and Noel Mazzoni's there too. But ASU can't afford to be playing defense with all these schools, with the ones that they usually have to play defense with, and now with the addition of a bunch of Big 12 schools that smell blood. You know, when University of Texas flies in a coach uh, to see a recruit, the coach is going to stay at the high school for as long as they're allowed. They're going to be there all day. It's not going to be like a half-hour check-in or anything like that. ASU has to treat the local recruits, the high-level ones, like they're a high-priority out-of-state recruit. Maximize their time, right? To keep the foxes out of the hen house, they can't play defense. They can't play the role of farmer with these other schools. They have to be the biggest, baddest fox. Because these kids don't owe ASU anything, and ASU can't say anymore, like, oh, our proximity should give us any type of advantage. ASU has to approach every single high-level uh, high in-state recruit like they're reaching to Northern California and extending resources that maybe they don't even necessarily have to give to spend the time. It is not an advantage for ASU that these kids are nearby. It is a disadvantage because it creates a sense of ultimately complacency that you have time to go and get the job done. That your proximity can help because you can lure them down for a few extra unofficial visits. Don't get comfortable. You gotta be the biggest, baddest fox. You gotta chase these kids harder than anyone else does. You have to show them that you want them more and that you're not um, necessarily resting on your laurels just because you have some sort of uh, proximity, right? So Arizona State still has a pretty good shot at a lot of four stars for the class of 2019. It's going to be tough. There's Ty Robinson out at Higley, Matthew Polamau out at Chandler, Noah Pola Gates at Williams Field. Um, those guys are all four-star recruits. I feel like Arizona State's probably running a close second 
maybe even third for for those three guys. Um, beyond that, there's uh, Javin Buda Wright at Hamilton, who is this? Uh, he's a, this is going to be tough, right? He's a Nebraska legacy. Then you have Braden Rame at Perry, who's a UCLA legacy. Then you have Kaiheem Walid, who you were late on. Uh, Arizona and Cal are already out in front, and he's taken an official to Iowa State. You know, so it's going to be tough for for some of those guys. There's other guys that they've offered, like Jalen Williams, Andre Johnson, um, Austin McNamara, fantastic kicker and punter out of Highland. My guess is that they probably maybe land maybe two more in-state kids. I think five would be pretty decent, uh, considering they started out behind the eight ball and they're having to repair a lot of the relationships um, that that ultimately were sort of uh, damaged... um, through a lack of maintenance. I would say that what Arizona State coaches are doing right now is they're mending fences, uh, which, you know, Todd Graham's whole thing was build the fence, right? Well, I think they put in a lot of effort right away, but ultimately when coaches leave, you know, um, and when you have a lot of turnover um, and when you have uh, different priorities coming in for different years, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's difficult. But with Herm Edwards there, with Al Luganville there, you know that you're going to get a serious evaluation for a lot of these kids, um, especially with people helping out in the recruiting staff like Fred Gamage. You know, no stone's going to go unturned. So I, I definitely see ASU trending in the right direction. But in the end, all that matters is results. Results on the field uh, will earn you results in recruiting. Period. I've in your ear now. I might praise on state. What up in the way now? Can you roll with the weight? I've been in your ear now. I might praise on state. Sunday morning. Church choir on familiar context. Put it on my heart. Praise God for the conscience. Writing in the spirit. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? Can you feel it? Artificial limit clear it. Do it. Do it. Let's get into basketball. Uh, Bobby Hurley hosted a press conference um, for all of the media. Hoderbino, Jack Harris were both out there. And and he had a lot of really, really interesting things to say. And to, to start out, he spoke to what is essentially my biggest concern for the team, that they are ultimately losing their entire identity, their entire offensive identity, um, as, as a team that really went out there and just rained three-pointers uh, with the graduation of Shannon Evans, Trey Holder, and Cody Justice. But that was something that he addressed right off the bat in his press conference. So I'm going to go ahead and play you a clip off of the, uh, the video recording from devilsdigest.com. You know, we lose three guys that were critical to what we did, very key players to, you know, to what we're building here. And uh, with Trey, Shannon, and Cody, but you know, we're replacing them with, uh, with six guys that, that I think are very capable. So it's, it's uh, you know, I'm going to take this whole summer to really spend a lot of time looking at the team and evaluate the team. I don't have one set way that, that I force my players to play. It's it's determined by your roster and what that looks like and the makeup and how everyone mixes and then you know, we'll come up with you know the best way that we need to play this season. Bobby Hurley doesn't have a, a, a style that he's going to force these guys into. He's not Mike D'Antoni. He's not Phil Jackson. He's going to take a look at the roster and do what is best for this team based off of what they put on the court. So let's talk a little bit about what it is that they're going to put on the court. Um, 
they're going to have more height than they've had in the past. And, you know, this is assuming that nobody messes up or gets chased off the team for doing something that they shouldn't do and that everyone's healthy and, and, and ready to go. Uh, but Zylan Cheatham is going to be eligible for what is probably his final year coming over from San Diego State. He's six foot eight and very athletic. You saw what Mickey Mitchell was able to contribute last year, but he was probably playing a little bit out of his depth as far as, you know, having to guard uh, other power forwards and centers being six foot seven. Kamani Lawrence might not look six foot seven, you know, but he, he, he maybe looked a little bit smaller based on his impact last year, but he's six foot seven. Tayshawn Cherry's coming in at six foot eight. Uh, Vitaly Scheibel's improving and he stands six foot nine. And then Rob Edwards, who, who transferred over from Cleveland State, is he's a big guard, six four. Uh, Lugan Stewart, six four. Um, this is basically an entire team that's going to be out there outside of uh, Remy Martin that's somewhere between six foot four and six foot nine. And so while they don't have that, you know, dominant seven footer, um, you know, things didn't necessarily pan out with Jethro Deshampa, you know, the way that they that they would have liked. Um, but, you know, while they don't necessarily have that dominant true center, uh, they're going to be able to bang down low with 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 some people as well is, you know, when Vitaly Scheibel goes out there and gets four fouls in five minutes, uh, be able to replace him with somebody, um, you know, like Zylan Cheatham or Tayshawn Cherry to go in and absorb some of those minutes um, that, that, you know, usually they'd end up with just maybe Mickey Mitchell guarding the five. And so, you know, and, and, and with all that said, you still have Romello White and Daquan Lake who fill the role of what, what would really tr- be the true center on the team, who play really well off of each other. Uh, one has high potential on the offensive end. One seems to show really high potential on the defensive end. And so, you know, uh, this is really becoming a team, though, of slashers. Um, and they have to replace about 400 three-point attempts. So if, if Bobby Hurley was talking about completely restructuring the team to fit into the style that they had with Justice, Holder, and Evans there, it would literally be impossible. You would be putting guys that, that are probably going to shoot 30 to 32% from, from the three-point line, you know, hoisting up 150 to 180 three-pointers. And that's not necessarily something you want. That's not super efficient. And that's not to say that they were actually very efficient last year. You know, they're going to have to find a way to move the ball a little bit better. They're going to have to... um, This is a team that you could ultimately see a different high scorer potentially every single night. With Kamani Lawrence being healthy, you're going to see a completely different uh, feel from him. Zylan Cheatham and Tayshawn Cherry have the ability to come in and make an impact immediately. Someone on this team is going to have to score. Now, Remy Martin can handle the ball, and Rob Edwards has proven at a lower level that he can get buckets, but, you know, who is it going to be? Who is it going to be? Who is the cream that will rise to the top? Because right now, looking at this roster, I can say, man, there are a lot of B-plus players. A lot of B-plus players. But you never know. Lugan Stort could come in and be a -a 20-point-a-game guy immediately. Kamani Lawrence could come out and surprise you, or he could end up giving the same effort he did last year, not being totally healthy, looking lost out on the court, not necessarily being in basketball shape. There's a lot of promise from Tayshawn Cherry. Rivals, you know, had that as a top 50 kid that's coming to ASU, one of the highest rated recruits in the history of Arizona State basketball. But, you know, where is his head going to be at? 
what's his level of assertiveness been? He's had enough drama in his off-court and on-court life in the last year that, you know, is he going to be able to thrive? Is this situation going to be healthy for him? Is he going to be healthy in this situation? Do Mickey Mitchell and Vitaly Scheibel improve at all? Because they're going to need to. Is Zylan Cheatham able to stay healthy? He's had foot issues and things like that in the past. There's a lot of question marks on this team. It is going to be an absolutely fascinating team to watch. But what's definitely true is that none of the players on this team can afford to play at the level that they played at last year, including the guys that are coming over from high school or the ones who had to sit out a year to transfer in. Everyone's going to have to be better if they want this team to be competitive. Everyone's going to have to be better. The one thing that that uh, everyone seems to be wholly confident in, and I'm not sure that I share this level of confidence, is that Remy Martin is ready to be the guy. Hode Rubino swears by Remy Martin, and I, I fully uh, see what he is talking about. I understand the change of pace that would happen when he was off the court. I thought his substitution patterns were odd. Um, when he was making an impact, it was super exciting. The, probably the most fun you could have watching Arizona State basketball is with Remy Martin on the court uh, playing energetic offense and defense. And he was co-sixth man of the year last year in the Pac-12. And he has ice in his veins. He really feels absolutely no pressure. Such a well-put-together kid. But is he going to go from 10 points, 3 rebounds, and 3 assists a game to, you know, what ASU probably needs from him? which is maybe closer to 15, 7, and 7. Keep him out of foul trouble. Keep him healthy. Keep him in rhythm. Because he's going to be getting, you know, instead of the 24 minutes a game he was getting, he's probably going to be closer to 31, 32. So I am not as confident as everybody else seems to be in the fact that Remy Martin's going to be completely ready to go. There are sophomore slumps, and this is going to be a different role for him. So he's another one that's going to have to step up. Everyone on the team is going to have to be better than they were last year. And the team's identity to me seems like a team that if they don't move the ball, if they don't move the ball and if they don't play communicative team defense, and if Bobby Hurley doesn't master substitution patterns that 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 um, don't cause massive disruptions in rhythm, which seemed to happen quite a bit last year, then this tough schedule where they have um, Kansas, uh, Nevada, uh, you know, road games at San Francisco, Georgia, Vanderbilt, Princeton's coming to town, Cal State Fullerton, uh, Mississippi State, you know, they might even play St. Mary's this year. They could struggle. They started off 12-0 last year, and it was fantastic being the number three ranked team in the country. But there were a lot of errors and issues that ultimately got exposed once ASU hit Pac-12 play. I think the advantage that ASU will have when they're playing their out-of-conference this year is they won't necessarily know their identity. They'll be going through some trial and error, and they'll hit their rhythm and hit their identity come Pac-12 play. They won't have a whole bunch of film on them and one real clear way to stop them. Last year, if you could guard the three-point line, you could shut ASU down. Unless they got super hot and we're hitting shots with people's hands in their faces. So, you know, we're, we'll see. We'll see. Um, I, I think people get addicted to the three-pointer and they want to let it fly, but if Arizona State can bang and slash, get to the free-throw line, you know, that's really going to be um, 
that's really going to be uh, their bread and butter, especially with a bunch of 6'8", 6'9", 6'10", guys. Uh, if they can get the ball down low, draw some fouls, get the other team in foul trouble, take advantage of the fact that for the first time in a long time they have depth, um, you know, and the fact that pretty much every other team out there is also going to be looking for an identity as well. There's not really a super established Pac-12 team. The Pac-12 is up for grabs, but Arizona State's going to have to get closer to the finish line of finding their identity um, than anybody else does earlier on. Uh, now, a really good question is, you know, is this Arizona State team ready to take the next step? And to me, the, the next step is ultimately, uh, you know, an NCAA appearance that isn't necessarily a play-in game. Uh, and that can you, you can secure at least two wins, a Sweet 16 appearance. Sweet 16 is going to be probably the thing that, that, that would define this or perhaps next season as being ultimately successful. And finding a way to be in a rhythm as a head coach and balance a roster of contributors without having five guys quit on you in the middle of the season. So if Arizona State can finish in the top half of the Pac-12, and if Arizona State can get a couple of wins in the tournament, and if Arizona State can go into next year with most of the players that it has on this year's roster, I think that's a step in the right direction. I think that they're, they're, they'd ultimately be in a place... Minimal roster turnover, a couple of wins in the tournament, headed into the 2019-2020 season as maybe potentially being the premier sport on campus. Men's and women's basketball would possibly stand alone. They're certainly in a better place than football. So we'll see, though. Freshmen have to be ready to contribute. The transfers have to be ready to contribute. And everybody that got minutes last year has to be healthy and ready to step up. So if you want to know a little bit more about Bobby Hurley's press conference, go ahead and log on to devilsdigest.com. Uh, Hoderbino fil filmed about 30 minutes of video that you can watch, as well as Jack Harris, fantastic staff writer for Devil's Digest, breaks it down uh, and, and does his 10 main takeaways. So if you're not subscribed to Devil's Digest, make sure that you subscribe. Fantastic, awesome community of people, the best content that you'll find anywhere. Uh, make sure that you go ahead and jump on there and check that stuff out, and we'll see how the basketball season ends up. Uh, all right, last segment, let's get into some. Some of your questions. Family look like cursing, now I'm staring at this verse. Now Christ struggle, gonna leave me more humble. Sin upon my head, repentance coupled with faith. Trusting in the name, forgiveness embedded in grace. Counting costs with benefits, spirit had announced their fast. Alright, I asked Devil's Digest subscribers as well as people who follow me on Twitter to go ahead and shoot me some of the questions that they have about Arizona State. I will get into what I can, answer what I can. If I don't get to your question uh, this time, I'll make sure that I get to it on a future podcast. Or go ahead and if you're a member of devilsdigest.com, throw it up on the board and we'll be sure to have a discussion about it on the message board. So the first question that I got and one that is a fantastic question is which newcomer am I most excited to see in uh, the upcoming fall camp. I, I, I could never, ever just keep it. It's just, just like uh, the potato chip commercials. I can never keep it to just one. And so I'll give you, I'll give you five. Uh, I am probably most excited to see uh, number one right off the, off the bat, probably most excited to see Stanley Lambert. 
uh, because they don't necessarily have a position for him yet. He's 6'4", 215, listed as a defensive back. He's probably going to be in more of a linebacker role, could even grow to essentially be a defensive end. They could turn him into an H-back if they wanted to. So I'd really like to see him in person, like to see them sort of experiment with what they're going to do with him. He's out of San Antonio, Texas, um, three-star athlete, just a fantastic, fantastic physical specimen, but they don't know what they're going to do with him yet. And so he's somebody that I'm very interested in seeing, you know, where he fits in, in the very beginning. Um, I would say that another prospect that I am very excited to see, uh, and, and there are so many, um, but I watched Ashari Crosswell be a dominant defensive back at Augustus Hawkins before transferring to Long Beach Poly under, under um, Antonio Pierce out in California. And he was always a player that I was wondering if, you know, if he was peaking at the high school level or if he had another level to really up his game when he got to when he got to college. And so he's somebody that I'm interested to see, because if he can come in and he can compete for snaps right away, man, that what what an amazing coup that would be for Arizona State to pull, you know, a four star like they did you know, him at the very last minute and for him to come in and, and, and ultimately be um an immediate impact player that could be huge. Um, another player that I'm very, very excited to see come in and participate uh, in fall camp. I would have to say, um, gosh, they have so many running backs, right? Isaiah Floyd's coming in, AJ Carter uh, from from Louisiana, Brock Sturgis. They're all different body types. Demetrius Flowers, um, who I think might be actually gray shirting, um, but I, I would say that. Of everybody, uh, I, Brock Sturgis at Allen, Texas, because he 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 so publicly did all of the things he did. A lot like Eno Benjamin, he was a very well known product of of Texas high school football. Um, not to say that I'd be starstruck or anything like that, but he was a really big deal at the high school football level. So it'd be very interesting to see, you know, what he's able to do with some of those reps, maybe out at Camp T. Um, he he's somebody that that really to me. Um, could be an exciting player for Arizona State. Uh, but again, they have so many running backs, and I'm definitely interested to see what they all bring to the table. But he's the one I followed the most at the high school football level. You know, I didn't know a whole lot about A.J. Carter. Isaiah Floyd was certainly a surprise to me playing Juco football out in San Francisco. And so, um, and then Demetrius Flowers spent most of his senior season injured. And so, you know, Brock Sturgis was really the one guy I spent a lot of time watching at the high school level. I'd love to see how he adjusts to sort of game speed and the expectations um, that are that are going to be put on him. Uh, at this at this level at Arizona State, uh, two more that I'll give you. Um, you know what? Uh, this one might be a little bit of a surprise, but Taron Adams, the defensive back out of San Francisco, JUCO player, um, just absolute physical, just jerk. He was just super physical, um, just sort of a honey badger mindset in the defensive backfield, and he's somebody that I feel like could maybe play right away. He might actually be able to steal some time. Uh, he's one of the lower-rated three-stars that Arizona State pulled last year and didn't really have a whole lot of recruiting options. But I watched his film, and man, that guy just loves conflict. He loves getting after it. And if I'm going to be out watching uh, you know, a team go through the motions out at Camp T, don't get me wrong, Camp T is beautiful, and any opportunity to see Arizona State practice is fantastic and to get some observation time in and things like that. All that is well and good. But I like to see a guy go out there and talk some trash and liven things up a little bit. It's a reason I was a Kareem Moore fan. He would go out there and get in people's heads. 
<laughs> ruin Alice Jefferson's day. You know, just talk your trash, regardless of whether it's your teammate or not. You know, liven up the environment. I feel like Taron Adams could be that kind of player. And then uh, the probably the most obvious one is I think everyone's really interested to see what Jarrett Bell, the offensive lineman out of Norco, brings to the table. Four-star, 6'5", 295. Had they not got Casey Tucker, had they not got a transfer from USC, Jarrett Bell might have had to come in and compete for a starting spot as a true freshman. Who knows if... You know, ASU has to struggle with any injury or depth issues on the offensive line. Jared Bell might have to play as a freshman. So he's somebody that I'm definitely interested in seeing. Again, would love to see all these players in person. I've heard of Brandon Ayuk and Jordan Porter's speed is off the charts. Um, Dominique Harrison almost committed to Arizona State a year before he actually committed to Arizona State. So we've been waiting on him for a long time. He's already on campus. Um, Michael Matus at 6'2", 230. Uh, Merlin Roberts at 6'3" you know, 220 are a couple of, of guys who I'm interested to see how they come in and ultimately use their size. Jermaine Lowley from Long Beach, California, uh, 6'2", 250 is someone I'm really interested in seeing how, how he comes in and competes. Um, and then Ralph Frias, who I've been following forever. So I mean, there are so many players. You know, Eli Doyle, who they ultimately felt like it was okay to lose Kenny Churchwell uh, to UL, UCLA because Eli Doyle can come in and, and really fill the need that they had at that safety position. Um, just uh, so many great stories, just with the plethora of running backs, receivers, a couple of offensive linemen that might have to contribute early on, a couple of guys that they weren't necessarily involved in recruiting who may have some size issues, uh, like Reggie Hughes and Michael Matus. You know, like, can they find a place for them? Can these guys come in and make an impact? I think those are important issues. I'm excited to see everybody, but the the, the five that I the five that I outlined will be the ones that I have the closest eye on. Ashari Crosswell, just because I've been watching him play for so long, um, you know, I I gotta say, obviously Brock Sturgis because of you know I'm a big fan of Texas high school football and he was an absolute star, you know, on 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 that level. And then you know from there, I'd love to see Taron Adams come in, mix it up bring in some of that attitude Jared Bell because he he potentially has the ability to to play immediately and then Stanley Lambert being just an absolute athletic freak uh, could come in and really fulfill the you know that devil backer role that they were always looking to fill with Bo Wallace and Devon Durant and all the bad luck they had at that position this is the kind of guy that Todd Graham would have brought in to potentially fill that role so um, definitely interested in all of those players I know it was a super long-winded answer but oh man Camp T can't come soon enough uh, next question. Why should I trust the staff? Is the recruiting philosophy right, good or bad, to take a flyer on some of these um, lower-level recruits? Is it the, the right thing to do? Okay, so first of all, why should you trust this staff? You shouldn't. You shouldn't. Um, I think every fan is by nature an optimist. So when you have somebody tell you that this is what they hope to see, I think it's your duty as a fan to root for that to happen. Um, but as far as like just giving over blind trust, I think it's perfectly fine to just be results oriented. And this is staff that got some results on the final day of, you know, of, of, of last year's, um, was it the, you know, early signing day, um, they managed to get some stuff done, and late signing day, they jumped 49 spots. So I think that that can earn you some trust. Some results right there, right? You jumped 49 spots uh, in the recruiting rankings because of what you're able to close out on signing day. 
that could earn you some trust right there. But I don't think you you naturally just blindly trust that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Al Luganville said that 2019 is going to be a tough recruiting year. Then again, I've heard a couple of other assistant coaches say it's not. They've got some big things planned. they got some big players that they think they're going to be able to land. You don't have to go out of your way to trust anybody. Just go based off of the results. I know that Ray Anderson threw everything for a giant loop when he said that he wants ASU to be top three in the Pac-12, top 15 in the country, and regularly get four and five stars. Um, you know, And I know that there's that saying, shoot for the moon and you'll land in the stars, which is just you know scientifically and factually ridiculously false because the moon is about a few million miles closer than every single star you know shoot for the moon you probably land on your ass um but i i think that ray anderson set very high expectations invite and he invited you to hold him to those expectations and to hold this staff to those expectations so let's turn around and look at the fact that the guys that arizona state is bringing in are essentially lower recruited guys right they're not um, when I when I look at the guys that they've landed, they are Ladarius Henderson's best offer. They're Connor Soley's best offer. They're Ricky Pearsall's best offer. They're Roman DeWiss's best offer. They're Joey Yellen's best, most uh, optimally located offer, maybe outside of Georgia, who is super stacked with talent, and he might not necessarily... Joey Yellen could compete as a redshirt freshman to start at ASU. That's not happening at Georgia. So I would say ASU is Joey Allen's best offer. They're Ethan Long's best offer. They didn't really beat anybody for six of those guys. Tidy Armand's the one where you can say, oh, you know, you had offers from Arkansas and Baylor and Iowa, Kansas State, Minnesota, you know, Texas Tech, who you even visited, Utah, Washington State, Wisconsin. That's the one guy you could say, oh, wow, we really wrestled uh, victory from the jaws of defeat there. 27 offers, and he picks Arizona State, right? But then again, you turn around and look at his ranking. He's the number 60-rated athlete, number 85 overall athlete in Texas, and a 5.63 star. He's not the 4 and 5 star you were promised. Some of these 4 and 5 stars are peaking in high school, and some of the 3 stars are guys that are still on the way up. But Ray Anderson outlined these expectations, right? So is Arizona State's philosophy right in essentially taking chances on guys and trying to develop them? It's what Utah does. Utah finds some success. But it's not who they said they want to be. And it's not actually who Arizona State wants to be. I guarantee that if they take all these two- and three-star guys, turn around and win with them, they're going to try to use that to up the ante and get four- and five-star guys. Every school does it. Again, speaking as a Wyoming fan... They actually were pretty decent the last two years. And when you're pretty decent the last two years and you get some national branding, you turn around and use that clout to try to get a little bit better. Maybe the recipe that got you there is two stars from Illinois and Colorado. But if the two stars that you got from Illinois and Colorado can get you in position to get some three stars from Las Vegas or California, you're going to go try to get the three stars from Las Vegas or California. If Arizona State can find a way to take these two- and three-star players from Texas, California, and, and Arizona, get themselves to 10 wins, maybe win the Pac-12 South, I guarantee you the people that they're going to be going after, they're going to be going head-to-head -head with USC and UCLA for recruits again. So is it a good thing? If it works, results are the only thing that matter, right? Should you trust them? No. doesn't mean you should be distrustful. You should just react to the results that you get. 
or don't react at all. <laughs> just, en just enjoy the show. Just enjoy the show. But obviously, you know, that's bad business for me. I want you reacting to everything and paying attention to everything. The more you pay attention to ASU football, the more you pay attention to ASU recruiting, the more relevant the information that I have to uh, offer you becomes. So, uh, yes, react to everything, pay attention to everything. But ultimately, I would say don't be, don't trust anything blindly. Um, hope for the best. You, know, you don't even have to prepare for the worst. Just hope for the best and react to what you get. Uh, next question, the stadium name. Um, what's the deal with that? How much money do you think they'll get? Are you hearing anything? So I am not. Um, I, I probably, you know, posted something on Twitter that I that I shouldn't have that was based on the stadium construction cam uh, where, where Arizona State uh, might have been hosting a company uh, that was, you know, pitching a bid for solar for them. Um, or, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure what was going on there i do know that just on the video board it said dc solar stadium i thought that was worthwhile i mean they put it up on the construction cam they can't blame me for noticing that it's there right dc solar stadium would you be open to the idea of changing sun devil stadium's name if the money was good enough if they were good stewards of that money ultimately it's not up to us right they're going to do what they do there is going to be heartstrings pulled at when it comes to the stadium name. Look, I still call Talking Stick Resort whatever America West Arena because that's what it was when they were good. Still America West Arena to me. It doesn't matter what they named Sun Devil Stadium. It could be the Chuck Box uh, Stadium and everyone in there could love eating Chuck Box and have a real affinity toward Chuck Box, and people are still going to call it Sun Devil Stadium because they don't like change and you go with what you sort of grew up on and what you knew. I don't expect Arizona State fans to be happy with any company that comes in and changes the name of the stadium, but I do figure, you know, if they're going to rename this stadium DC Solar Stadium, at least it has something to do with the sun. At least you can relate it to the mascot in some level. At least you can tie it in in some way. I've seen people complain that it's a California company and that it's not necessarily local. We have no say in this stuff. The people who write and collect the big checks and want to show huge revenue increases in shares uh, at the end of every quarter so that they can turn around and... Um, use it to get the next high-profile job or get raises. You know, it's all about money for them. They're going to do what they can to, to make the most money to sustain the program that turns around and puts food on their table. Everybody's a lobbyist for their own self-interest. And what's in the interest of people that work for Arizona State is to get a bunch of money. What's in the interest for the fans is to... Just enjoy the experience. As long as the stadium is a place that they can enjoy and as long as people feel listened to when they have issues uh, at the stadium or with their season tickets, or as long as they feel heard and the experience is positive, uh, it, could be the, it could be the Tampax Bowl. Ultimately, it's not going to matter. People are still going to call it Sun Devil Stadium. They're still going to judge their experience by uh, how things go on Saturday, right? So, you know, I, I think that... Uh, it's probably in Arizona State's best interest to at least feel out any suitors that there are um, to ultimately change the name of the stadium. And then we as the public will judge whether or not they got enough money to go ahead and, you know, sell out 
ultimately, you know, being in, independent on that level, you know. But naming rights are a big generator of revenue. Uh, I, I remember the University of Phoenix Stadium, you know, I think like $180 million. I think that the, the Bidwills got like $480 million, 300 from from Glendale and $180 million from University of Phoenix, and ultimately got a stadium in the middle of Glendale paid for without a dime out of their pocket. Stuff like that is very appealing. So if Arizona State can get some money and they can be good stewards of that money and ultimately translate it into being a winning program or turn around and make the renovations that people believe are necessary to Wells Fargo, then probably they should go ahead and do it. And ultimately, the little guy doesn't have much of a say in it anyway. The say you do have in it is to be able to call it whatever you want, whenever you want to, right? Still be Frank Cushfield, still be Sun Devil Stadium. All right, so the last question. Uh, is ASU on its way to becoming a basketball school? And if not, how can it become a basketball school? Well, this is tricky, right? Because a lot of energy at uh, Wells Fargo Arena last year. They take the, the partitions out so that the stadium can get filled. Um, you know, they start out 12-0. and 0, They get the number three ranking. They ultimately go to the tournament. Uh, a lot of excitement around Arizona State basketball. The Suns have sucked for eight years. So the window for people just wanting a good basketball product is open. But it's closing because the Suns just got the number one pick in the draft and they paired University of Arizona's DeAndre Ayton with Devin Booker, which is either going to go spectacularly or flame out in spectacular fashion. But the eyeballs are starting to shift back to the Phoenix Suns. And now some people can have eyes on more than one thing at a time. But ASU was really seeking to wet Arizona's Central Arizona's basketball appetite and fill a role that the Suns couldn't. And at the same time, uh, ASU football has been stagnant. I would say that ASU is not necessarily considered a basketball school yet. The way that they could be, have an Elite Eight run this year. Because the Suns aren't going to make the playoffs this year. They're going to improve. They might go from 21 wins to like 35, 36. They're on their way, though. The Suns are on their way. And so if you're going to make your mark and you're going to steal some of that allegiance, you got to do it right now. So I do not think the ASU is a basketball school yet, but they can be by winning this year. Finish top two in the Pac-12, make your way to the Elite Eight, and I think that people will be ready to start calling Arizona State University a basketball school. Which is crazy to think about, but it could happen, right? All right, this has been the Devil's Junkie Podcast. I'm your host, Ralph Amsden. Keep it tuned to devilsdigest.com. You can follow the Devil's Junkie Podcast on Twitter at ASU underscore rivals. We also have a page on Facebook if you want to go ahead and give us a like. You can follow me at Ralph Amsden on Twitter uh, and the stuff that I do for high school football and basketball at AZHSFB and at Arizona Varsity. Make sure you subscribe to devilsdigest.com. An annual membership runs you about $8.33 a month. We do our absolute best to make it worth it. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.
All my friends were vampires Didn't know they were vampires Turns out I was a vampire myself in the devil town